Jonathan Denu and Ryan Orban are the co-founders of Zipfian Academy, which trains data scientists, engineers, and analysts. Jonathan and Ryan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. So what is Zipfian Academy? Yeah, so um, Zipfian Academy all started from some idea that me and Ryan had early on when we started getting much more into data. And I'll, I'll let Ryan talk about kind of his path to it. But originally, it came about trying to just educate and spread some of this knowledge that used to live in big tech companies. It was kind of siloed away. Not many people talked about it. There weren't books and resources. Um, so it started off to teach. It grew into this immersive 12-week data science boot camp covering Python, software engineering, data engineering, machine learning, statistics, um, kind of the whole breadth of what you might need as a data scientist. And the kind of the key thing that I think we really wanted was to focus a lot on placements and outcomes because we both are kind of graduates of traditional higher education. And from day one, we wanted to make sure that if people come through our program, they can have the skills to be a data scientist in, in industry and also can go through the whole process of interviewing and, and get landed in a, in a job. Sure. So, uh, so uh, Ryan, I guess we'll hopefully get to your background uh, throughout the show, but I did want to ask you about a talk that, that you gave where you, you described data science from the perspective of a company that's recruiting people. And you describe data science as this thing that often gets conflated between uh, all these different roles. Like you, you find, uh, you know, people will be looking for something that is like a software engineer and a data engineer and a statistician and a data scientist. And a company, like companies seem to often not really know what they're looking for with a data scientist. Um, would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Um, you know, we have talked to you know hundreds of hiring managers and data science uh, managers uh, kind of throughout the industry, both in the Bay Area and nationally. And you know, if if you went and asked each one of them to define data science, you would get a hundred different answers. Um, data science as a field is relatively new. It's it's a few years old. Um, a lot of people who a lot of people will say that data science has been around forever and that it's just you know statistical inference. But really what we're seeing is a confluence of all of these different skills, both computer science, machine learning, statistics, and software engineering as applied to industry problems. And when you look throughout the industry, everyone are using these components in different ways. And so one of the struggles that we had early on in our program, which we kind of think of as the, the last mile, it's for professionals and academics um, who have a lot of previous experience, but really need some additional training in the practical side, right? The actual applications and the ability to use a modern tool set to solve some of these problems is creating a foundation that is applicable to an entire industry. Um, and that was one of the, the hardest components because, you know, you talk to all these different companies and they all have different needs. And so one of the things that we did when we started is going out and, and we talked to a lot of the eminent uh, data scientists in the field and really took uh, almost a, a joint operation. We said, what are the things that are common and what are the things that every data scientist needs to learn? And we don't tell people that you're going to come out of this program being an expert data scientist, that you're going to have to be on your own path, right? And that determines 
um, is determined by you know, which company you go for, what industry you end up in. Um, you're going to continue along that journey, and we really see ourselves as an accelerator to get you there. Um, and so we spend a lot of our time um, kind of counseling companies in hiring data scientists, uh, both figuring out their needs and where um, we can create the most acceleration within their business. And, and one of the things that we always tell companies is that instead of looking for that unicorn data scientist who can do it all, right? Someone who's going to come in and revolutionize your entire company and your, your data backend and, and get to generate amazing insights and be a fantastic communicator all at the same time. Those people do exist, but they're incredibly well compensated. They're in very high demand and they only want to work at the, at, at the most interesting problems. And so we always uh, tell our hiring partners that they should look to assemble teams of data scientists, teams of T-shaped people that have complementary skill sets that are going to be able to work together to solve problems and communicate um, the solutions to the rest of the team. What is a T-shaped person? Yeah, a, a T-shaped person is someone who's a, a broad generalist, right? So they have um, kind of some surface level skills in a variety of different things, maybe um, you know, software engineering and machine learning and statistics and communication and kind of uh, business acumen, but have a, a deep domain level expertise in, in one field. So you might uh, construct a team where there's a statistics expert, a machine learning expert, someone who is an amazing software engineer, and maybe uh, someone who's really attached uh, and understands the business goals and is able to communicate the findings of that team you know, to, to uh, you know, a CEO and our executive. And they can all work together to attack the problem um, using those you know, generalized skills to work together and have that common language and common knowledge, but are really contributing their own deep level expertise onto that team that is going to create something that is you know, better or greater than the sum of its parts. Jonathan, what kinds of students do you see joining Zipvian Academy? Like what is what is the experience level when somebody comes into Zipvian and what are they looking to achieve? Yeah, Jeff, yeah. Jeff, I'm actually going to jump in there real quick because oh, sure. um, one one component that you probably might not have heard is uh, so Zipvian Academy actually joined Galvanize uh, in November of last year. Oh um, yes. Yeah, so we're actually part of Galvanize now, so we should probably refer to the program going forward under the oh, Galvanize Oh, absolutely. Not, not of Zipier. course. Yeah. Of course. No, we, um, we will discuss that later. No, I, I, I knew that. I didn't know the, what, to what degree the branding was at. But okay, so Galvanize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, so whatever you call the name, um, we usually <laughs> see um, students and, and applicants fall into one of three buckets. So I think the most typical or what most people think of as people transitioning into data scientists are these post-academics. So it's people who have either been doing research as a postdoc, working as a professor, or even in the middle of a PhD program where they really like the numerical quantitative aspect of things, but they realize that professional research or being a tenured professor isn't for them. So they're looking for something that would be intellectually stimulating, but um, can leverage kind of all the quantitative knowledge. So post-academic would probably be the most um, obvious transition. The other one is your typical developer or software engineer who might want to solve some more interesting and creative problems. So they've been a software engineer in industry for two, three, ten years. They've been programming web applications or, or kind of software architectures and they really want to think more critically about some problems and, and analysis. And the third group 
that usually applies is pretty interesting because it has some of the most breadth in backgrounds. And these are people transitioning from industry who might be working at companies that use data, but they may not be on a technical or data team. So these are people who are consultants, project managers, people who have been um, working with engineering teams and really want to skill up because they know the domain, they know the problems that they can solve, and they just need the technical and theoretical backing. So each one of those, um, if you think of this, this T-shaped person is missing a little bit of the T. So most people who apply have some experience. No one comes in with zero programming experience and zero technical experience, but usually they need to fill in some certain aspects. Um, mm. Okay, interesting. So let's get into a discussion of the curriculum. Um, when these students all start, what, what are the first types of tasks or exercises or technologies that they're presented with? What does the beginning of the curriculum look like? Yeah, yeah. So the first week is really focused on um, just software engineering and programming to get everyone to a certain baseline with, um, yeah, the, the engineering side of things, no matter where they're coming from. So we start them off on day one with a very hands-on applied problem where they're using Python. Um, most people coming in already have experience with Python. We require it in our interview process. And we also have a fairly extensive um, pre-course curriculum. So before people even step into the classroom, they've been working with the tools, the libraries. And um, day one is really to test them to make sure that they're all starting from a good baseline and also just uh, hammer in some best practices. So they go from working with Python and files and just parsing data to using some of the more um, advanced libraries like Pandas to do some more exploratory data analysis um, and also cover a few just basic computer science things um, that would be helpful going forward, such as object-oriented programming and, and software design, as well as just um, how to learn um, how to learn as a programmer and use things like Google Stack Overflow, read the documentation, understand what a stack trace is, which is something that I think everyone who's experienced takes for granted is my program's breaking. How do I know what's going, going wrong? Um, and usually that's something that you just get through years of banging your head against the wall. But um, we really want to set all the students up for success. Um, so by the end of the first week, everyone's at a relatively stable baseline in terms of programming ability and, and software. So the rest of the curriculum can really focus on some of the more advanced analytics and, and case studies. So advanced analytics and case studies. So when, when I went through my computer science uh, education, um, most of the classes were, were like a series of projects uh, interspersed with tests. How does Galvanize compare to um, compared to that format, like what is the what is the curriculum for the remainder of the academy look like? Yeah, so um, the curriculum as a whole, we really uh, when we set out to plan it again, we're focused on what do we know people need to be able to do to actually be practitioners, and let's backtrack from there. So we start with the end in mind of these are the common problems people are solving in industry, things like. Um, churn prediction, um, working with user metrics, doing natural language processing, um, being able to perform some predictive analytics. And then we backtrack from there and say, 
what are the um, techniques and theory that they would need to know. And let's fit that into the remaining um, seven weeks. So just the, the high level, um, it's a 12-week program. The first eight weeks are formal structured curriculum where students pair program, they work through exercises, and the latter weeks are focused on a project and interview preparation. So for the remainder seven weeks of that, that structured curriculum, um, students start off with some statistics and probability fundamentals, but it's all taught through this lens of what do data scientists need to do in industry and how do they work? So even when we're doing statistical theory, it's all grounded in how can we apply this and what problems do people use this to solve and how do they solve it? They solve it together. They solve it on teams. So let's have everyone um, pair program. Let's have everyone talk and collaborate together rather than having it be these projects that you can't talk to anyone or a test where you're grilled on how quickly you can learn something and pass a test in an hour. Um, so there are assessments just to give this um, grounding to make sure that the students understand the material from our perspective, but also to let the students know um, a little bit of a self-assessment of how do you stack up to what we expect. So um, yeah, assessments throughout. And then most of the exercises are these hands-on projects. So it's almost all projects, a few assessments, and then um, lecture and, and theory thrown in there where, where necessary. You know, one of the interesting things that you just touched on is this uh, this notion of collaboration. And all the coding boot camps I talk to really emphasize this collaborative aspect, which is very similar to how uh, you know actual jobs work. I mean, you you throughout the day you're talking to your coworkers, you're asking them for help. Um, of course, you're googling stuff also. So it's nice to hear that you guys have some sort of uh, googling and Stack Overflow. Uh, lessons because those could be like under underappreciated um, skills. Um, so you mentioned some of these projects. Can you give an example of a type of project that you would have somebody working on? Yeah, yeah. So one of um, one of my favorites from the curriculum is basically building this end-to-end prediction system. So we actually set up our own server that fires off data. Um, and the students have to build this um, web application to build an API to accept new data coming in, to collect historical data, which they then train a machine learning model on. And in the end, when new data comes through their API, they need to give predictions. And the whole model is based around this idea of detecting um, fraud on the application. And it's general enough that um, fraud detection can be applied to financial systems to text and posting things like Craigslist. You imagine looking at emails and things, you can say that's a fraud or or a scam. So um, we have some some data set of a bunch of text, a bunch of fraud, and students build a model and actually give predictions. And if they're really ambitious, they build a dashboard so you can see what those predictions are. And that's something that I think... um, really, really helps the students synthesize all these pieces together. Because data science, um, very, very much like web development and software engineering is very interdisciplinary. So the hardest thing that we see with students is being able to make these connections between disparate pieces of the theory and application that we teach and be able to look at a problem and say, oh, that's a 
fraud prediction problem. That's a natural language processing problem. That's a um, optimizing our, our user metrics and giving recommendations problem. What are the aspects of machine learning that students have trouble with? I would say the, uh, the thing I see that most common is not necessarily the math, the theory, the linear algebra, but it's being able to turn some not well-defined problem into something that's more structured and they can actually apply an algorithm to. And the canonical case is often text, is I know how an algorithm works with numbers, with a matrix of um, maybe floating point numbers that represent something, but how do I go from unstructured text, like a news article, into a structured row and column representation with numbers? And that feature engineering or, or um, processing of text is often the hardest part. And through it, you usually learn which model to apply. And I hear, I hear time and time again, students often at the end of the, the program just want some guide or some like cheat sheet of just which model do I use in which case. And a lot of times you really need to know your data. You really need to understand the limits of the models, but also the nuances of your data. And that's something that there's not a prescription for. There's, there's some heuristics you can use to guide um, your analysis on when to use which model when, but the hardest part is things that you just learn through experience of um, this random forest totally is gonna break down on this problem because it has similar characteristics to another problem that I tried it on and it totally failed. Um, so knowing when to use this kind of arsenal of, of models and techniques and which one would, would perform best. Yeah, I would say it comes down to, you know, intuition and, and knowing how to answer or ask the right question, right? So when you're kind of given a problem, a lot of it can be very vague um, and you have to really dig in and understand the data and then be able to have the intuition to know what algorithm to apply. And also, even before applying an algorithm, that what is the question that I'm asking here and what am I trying to solve? And that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time within the program, but that takes months or years to really uh, get down. And, and that just comes from experience and, and actually doing the stuff in practice. So, um, Ryan, maybe you would have a good answer to this, um, given your uh, presentation on uh, teams, on how, on how data science teams integrate with other teams. We did a show with Greg Lamp, who, uh, who works at a company called Y-Hat. And it's a company that's working to bridge this rift that forms between data science and engineering teams. And what he said was that to, what often happens is like data scientists will build these models and the models will be written in like R or Python. And then they'll kind of throw these models over the wall to engineering teams and say, hey, go implement this in your production code. Um, and so there's, there's this problem and there's other problems that develop between data scientists and engineers, um, how do you teach students to bridge the gap between building models and deploying their production code? I think that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we really believe, uh, especially when we're building the program, is that a good data scientist also has to be a good software engineer. And um, you see a lot of companies struggling to hire and find qualified talent because they're finding people who have the right 
stats and maybe machine learning background, but they don't have the right software engineering expertise to work with their engineering team to put this stuff into production. So we do a few things in the program. Um, one, which is you know, some of the lessons that, that John mentioned, was that we actually stress deployment um, and we make our students actually deploy their models into production um, you know, for their project. And we do that throughout the program and they're always consistently doing that. Um, secondly is, you know, we have the, uh, I would say fortune of having a, a ton of other different programs, uh, on our campuses. So we have a full stack development program. Uh, we just launched a data engineering program, uh, this month. Um, and we actually foster collaboration between those different um, disciplines. And so the, the data science students are working with data engineering students are working with um, the web development students to collaborate and actually build applications that, that go into production. Um, and, and one way to solve this, and kind of what I said in my talk, is that we need to have a common language. And so you know, the more that you can have your engineering team understand just a little bit of data science, and the more that you can have your data science team you know, learn uh, at least at the first level, you know, some production languages like Java or Scala, um, the better that they're going to be able to collaborate. And uh, the better that you know, they're able to sit down at the beginning, during, and at the end of a project and potentially find you know, roadblocks and really define milestones that are going to foster that collaboration. And then there, you know, there are tons of tools. Uh, you know, YHAT is amazing. Uh, they've come and given uh, lectures uh, to our class many times. They're incorporating our curriculum, as is you know, other companies like Domino and uh, Databricks. And those platforms can do uh, a huge amount of um, you know, a huge amount of work to kind of foster collaboration between those teams and being able to you know view those things, create APIs programmatically. You know, being able to walk over to you know a web developer and just give them an API that they can hit. Um, is very, very powerful. And so we're seeing, you know, not only the, you know, kind of software engineering chops of data scientists, you know, kind of throughout the industry continue to rise, but also these new platforms that are coming out that are, that are really easing that collaboration. So you mentioned data engineering um, as being part of the program or like a separate track, I think. Like, how, how, do you, how do you work that into the curriculum? How do you work in big data tools like Hadoop or Spark? Yeah, so um, data engineering, you know, we have a 12-week program. We'd love to spend uh, a full 12 weeks on it, which is why we built a separate one that's just, just for data engineering. But we do about a week of data engineering in the data science program. Um, and really, you know, we start that with a common basis. And so they're going to be doing things like MapReduce and thinking about functional programming in Python. Um, and once they have a handle on that, you know, we can move into Hadoop. And how do you actually do this stuff at scale? Uh, we don't go into as much as the administration, but more the, the actual implementation. Um, so one of the things that we'll do is actually a social network graph analysis using MapReduce. Um, so you can actually import your Facebook friends and, and do some analysis at scale. Um, and then we move into Spark, uh, which is really up and coming. And we've seen a lot of companies move towards that and look towards Spark uh, as a requirement. Um, and we'll go into not only how it differs from kind of normal, you know, Hadoop, MapReduce, batch processing, but how we can actually leverage stream processing on Spark and use things like Spark, uh, Spark SQL. So, you know, we, we do as much as we can that's applied. And, you know, one of the things that we stress is that kind of macro level knowledge of how the big data ecosystem is really put together. Um, and you really see that there's kind of these periodic elements of uh, a data engineering pipeline. Um, and as long as you kind of understand 
how those pipelines are created and what technologies are available and have experience at least using one of those. Um, like I said, every company is going to be different. You can much more rapidly come up to speed on a particular stack if you understand the landscape rather than if you've just been drilled in a particular, uh, particular tool. So we're, we're planning to do a week of shows about Spark. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective, what is the big breakthrough of the technology? Um, what, what makes Spark so important? How has it changed the landscape? Yeah, I think um, when you look at uh, big data tools, you know, versus kind of small, medium data tools. So if you're, you're working with small data and it can kind of fit on your laptop, you're used to using things like R or Python, right? You have an interactive, you know, kind of REPL in which you can, you know, put in, um, you know, your particular query and get a, an answer back within, you know, milliseconds. Uh, you can do visualization straight uh, on your laptop. You can be much more productive because you're able to have that, you know, kind of sub-second feedback and able to kind of bring to bear all of the tooling, um, both in the graphical user interface and um, in the command line. When you move into kind of a big data world, um, those timelines get really stretched out. You know, if you're working with you know gigabytes or terabytes or sometimes even petabytes of data, it could be minutes, hours, sometimes even days before you even get a result back. And so when you look at that kind of time to insight, um, it's you know it, it really slows down that iteration, that feedback loop that a data scientist uh, would want when they're kind of trying to understand or do some exploratory data analysis. And so what's really interesting about Spark is that it's really taken a lot of those components of having it on your laptop and moved it into a, a big data arena. So things that we could do as far as visualizing things in the browser or getting that real-time feedback, um, we can now do on much larger data sets using Spark, where if we were using something like Hadoop, we'd have to wait much longer. And so we're seeing that it's, it's very useful for you know, leveraging the, that kind of quick feedback loop and reducing that time to insight you know, for large data sets, especially in data science. Why do so many people that are like PhDs in scientific fields like neurobiology or material science, why do these people end up migrating to the world of data science? Yeah, I think um, a big component of it is the, the PhD to tenure track gap, right? And that there are more PhDs that are coming out than ever before and less and less tenure track positions available. Um, and so a lot of people are looking for alternatives uh, and an alternative career path outside of academia. Um, and, you know, particularly these kind of STEM PhDs, they're already kind of doing data science in a way in that in order to really be at the height of, you know, any field uh, in, in academia, especially in science and technology, um, you're going to need to be employing, you know, some level of programming, some level of statistical expertise, you know, sometimes some machine learning and predictive analytics. And, and it might be applied in a scientific context, um, and so when you, when they look for, you know, for alternatives, um, applying what they know and that kind of rigorous insight and being able to, to take a problem, you know, a research problem and break it down and, and work on it over a long period of time, um, those things map very well to industry. Um, and we've seen a lot of people go through our program and be very successful. The gap becomes, you know, they might be working in MATLAB, they might be working in, you know, some other, you know, kind of system that the that doesn't map well to industry, or they don't really understand industry best practices, like using Git and version control and working in pairs, um, or even industry terms, you know, like you know the marketing analytics and churn and you know lifetime value and all these things. So, if we can bring them up to speed on those, then they can rely on their own that domain expertise that we were talking about earlier to really be successful in industry. 
And what, I mean, what kinds of skills does does traditional academia uh, generally give these these people that need to to are deciding to transition to data science? Like, what what kinds of skills do they tend to come in with? Obviously, it's varied, but um. Um, you know, I think you can kind of put it into a few different buckets. Um, one, you know, specifically those who are going through a PhD program they have really been trained and kind of pushed in, in order to, to kind of ask the right questions, right? They're kind of pushing that, that envelope of human knowledge. And so they're having to go really deep and think very hard, you know, about a particular problem and come up with something that's novel or new, um, which I think is really important for a data scientist to, to understand. The, the second component is that research element where, you know, they are trained to, to look at a problem for a very long time and to, to really plan out and, and to look in and exhaust you know, every possibility, which I think is also important. Um, otherwise, just the, the core math and science skills, and you know, typically programming is in there as well, is really important. Um, and you tend to find people who are you know, very passionate about their fields and, and, and who are going to, to do very good work. Um, I don't know, John, if you have any, anything else to add as far as you know, how academia prepares people. Yeah, I would say um, it, it prepares people in good and bad ways. The good yeah, ways are, are what Ryan said, where you do get this very um, strong curiosity for things. And that really helps with, because um, in data science, the hardest problems often figuring out the question you want to ask. It's not really putting things through a machine learning library and just getting results. It's figuring out which model do I use. So um, people coming from academia, that's basically what they're trained for, is given some problem that no one knows the answer to, how are you going to find the questions to get an answer? And um, the flip side of that is the timelines in academia, the kind of workflow, if you will, is pretty, pretty much antithetical to what data scientists need to do, where they're basically trained. You have a year or years or five years to basically get super deep and super, like, knowledgeable and expert in one specific question, one specific problem. But the nature of, of the data science industry now is that there's not enough data scientists out there and every company wants them to do everything. So you have to really focus on how can I be most impactful with the limited time and resources I have. So it's not necessarily get to 100% perfect answer in two years, but let's get 80% of the way there in a month, two months, three months, and then iterate on that and, and go forward. So um, a lot of what we've seen in, in the program with people coming from PhD programs or people who have been researching for 10 years is that it's very hard for them to almost unlearn what they've been doing. And whenever presented with this wide breadth of, of skills they need to assimilate very quickly, they really want to go down these rabbit holes and learn everything about something like um, text classification or everything about building a support vector machine. And a lot of times there's diminishing returns to learning so much about one specific model or one specific application because a lot of times you need to have this, this general kind of, um, kind of macro sense of the problems you're solving. Very interesting. Um, so another thing that seems somewhat um, uh, anathema to how things work in academia is the, you know, which we've already touched on is this notion of collaboration and, and the team structures in, in corporate organizations or companies. 
Um, that's not to say that, that academia is not collaborative, but the way that you collaborate within a company uh, is, is, is probably probably dramatically different than, than how academia uh, collaborates. Um, how, how do you teach people that are coming out of academia um, to, to collaborate with each other? Yeah, a lot of a lot of it. Um, I guess one one part of it is just forced through pair programming. Um, but the I guess the more um, kind of deeper philosophical approach of collaboration happens through a lot of just the structure of our classroom and how we organize the program. It's all these things that people don't consider as part of the curriculum when they think. What's the curriculum of, of galvanized data science? It's, oh, we teach statistics, machine learning, programming. But I really see like educational programs as much more than just the content you teach. And I think the content's actually probably the least important. It's how you teach it and the structure of your exercises, your classroom, your teaching pedagogy. And a lot of the collaboration, especially for people coming from academia, we try to instill through how we organize our days from in the mornings, we have people work on little mini quizzes, but also just to start discussion around what they did previously. So they come in, they work on a a problem, maybe alone, but then after it, when they're in between exercises and lectures, they all have have this um, kind of common problem to talk about how they solved it and how someone else might have solved it, um, doing mini code review type things. And then they work on exercises together. They collaborate on certain parts of projects um, together. They may not all be solving one similar project, but they might have inputs on given aspects. If I know someone's doing something with images and in a previous life I did a lot of signal processing and, and image analysis, I might be able to contribute some, some knowledge and help there. And they might help me if I'm solving some problem that has a lot of... Um, engineering that I don't know about. So it's this um, forum for people to be able to communicate and collaborate openly, um, all in a physical space, and having exercises that basically promote people to share answers and not have really like in academia publication, first author publications drive things or not have grades drive things, but have the learning drive things. So everyone's there to learn as much as they can and help everyone else learn as much as, as they might be able to. And that's something that I think hopefully is breaking down this barrier of everyone's their own island. Maybe they collaborate on these small parts where they come together for a short time and they go apart. Um, it's more about these, these longer-lasting relationships where even on our alumni group, people say, hey, I just started working on a new problem. Has anyone worked on this before? And there's dozens of responses of, oh, I solved this. A few months ago at my company, like, here's what I did. So that, that um, kind of ethos, I think, goes a lot farther than any sort of um, formal type of workflow or agile process or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just informal collaboration, communication, and, uh, yeah, community. So, Ryan, I'd love to pick your brain a little more about these different data science team structures that you've noticed in the wild. Um, there's a really good presentation uh, that we'll put in the show notes where you talked about how data science is organized differently at places like Tesla uh, and Google and um, other companies. W- what are the trade-offs between these different these different data science team structures and how do they work? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what we've seen um, in industry is, you know, there's more, but the three kind of themes that we've identified um, are around how teams are structured within an organization. And this is really only applicable if you have kind of many data scientists within an organ. Um, as a data science manager, you have to make a decision for, you know, how is my team going to operate? And those three are kind of centralized. Um, we see distributed, and then we see a, a hub and spoke model. So, Centralized is, is typically the most common, and, and really that's where all of the data, data scientists are sitting in one room, um, and they act as almost like an internal consultancy, right? So they're uh, the ivory tower. Uh, if you want you know, some data science time to, to solve a particular problem, you have to uh, go and ask them to work on your particular problem, and then they will kind of collaboratively solve that. And, and that has uh, some pros in that you have this really strong data science culture, and that they can collaboratively you know, solve and tackle problems together. But the con of that is that uh, what can happen if left unchecked is that they lose sight of the business problems that you're trying to solve. And the ultimate goal of data scientists is to deliver business value. And if the data science team is working on things that are interesting to them, you know, like Jonathan was saying, going really deep in a problem that might be intellectually engaging, but does not actually deliver value to the business, um, that data scientist, uh, data science team is going to get wiped out fairly quickly, right? Because they're they're very expensive, um, and so what people have done to try to get around that is this distributed model, where we you know kind of push each data scientist into a uh, business unit. So you could say there's one on the marketing team, there might be one on product, uh, maybe one you know on HR or something like that, and um, they are basically embedded uh, completely within that team, and um, they're. Uh, goals uh, are dictated by that team, and they really understand, you know, the struggles that the team is, is going through and the business um, uh, needs that that need to get solved. Uh, and that works really well, you know, for delivering value and getting a lot of value out of your data scientists. But uh, the problem is, is they can get um, a little too distributed, in that you don't have that sense of camaraderie. They're not necessarily working together. You typically find them kind of reaching across the aisle and trying to work on each other. And you can actually be solving, you know, the same problem in different teams and not necessarily know about it. And so um, the kind of mix between those two is, is something called hub and spoke, where, you know, the data scientists sit together um, and they maybe meet once a week, you know, to kind of collaborate on problems. Um, but they're all assigned to different teams within the organization. And so, you know, their main focus is solving business problems for that team and really understanding, you know, what the needs are. But then they come together and work on those things collaboratively. And so you kind of have this trade-off where you're getting the best of both worlds where, you know, you're getting the requirements from the team. You're getting, you know, at least one or two people who really understand, you know, what needs to be done there. But you're also getting that, you know, kind of centralized control where you can, you know, potentially identify, you know, far-reaching problems within the organization or opportunities across different teams um, because you have both, you know, the deep level knowledge, but also the general knowledge of what's going on throughout the organization. So I always encourage people, you know, if you're a large enough company and you have data, you know, enough data scientists to really explore the, the, the hub and spoke model, because I really do think it's the best of both worlds. Mm, very interesting. Jonathan, um, I saw a quote from you where you said, you can learn from your students just as much as they can learn from you. And I definitely agree with that. What are the most important things that you've learned from your students? Yeah, um, I guess from from a higher philosophical level, the, the thing I've learned is um, not necessarily assume nothing, but be empathetic to 
the problem you're working on and the people you're working with. So I think I think empathy can be an, an overused, abused word, but um, from a uh, technical perspective, I think I've seen students approach problems and especially for their projects, they say, what am I actually solving and why am I solving it? And that's something that I think I, I never really um, fully internalized until I worked with 50, 100 students on all their projects. So getting to see that wide breadth and how they approach problems and what they want to solve and why they want to solve it, I think that put things in perspective um, a lot for me because I've approached it kind of data science from the lens that I think everyone else comes to it from either working in industry and solving some very particular problems and not really seeing the forest for the trees or from a lot of hobbyist perspectives where they get some data set they're interested in in finding out some, let's say, like who the most valuable player on a sports team is based on their statistics. Um, that might be something that you're, you're curious about solving, but then at the end of the day, you have to think, is this um, hopefully going to gonna impact anyone or could it be used for anything greater? And I think the, the projects in the program are a period where students ask me questions about things that aren't in the curriculum that I've never thought about and um, question me and, and the things that we've taught of, can this be solved and can I use the things I've learned to actually solve it? So... Um, it's kind of this two-pronged um, learning. One is just learning how to approach problems and people and almost communicate much, much better. And the second component is just on a pure technical level is um, the students often ask the best questions about when things break and when things go wrong. And that's something that I think a student's the best person to, to highlight is it's almost when you give a new toy to a kid and, and they try to break it in every possible way and tear it apart. Um, students in, in um, the data science program tend to do that for any new theory or application. If we, we drop in, here's how to build APIs with Flask, and they say, oh, well, if I, I can do that with this one exercise. Maybe I can build my whole website, or maybe I can build a recommendation engine that gives this real-time feedback. And John, like, is it possible to do it in this way as opposed to that way? And what happens if X, Y, and Z comes into my data? Um, and, and those what ifs, I think, um, really help you understand what you're talking about much, much more and at a much more intimate level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so Ryan, you mentioned in a talk that you've trained professional poker players at Zipian up I mean, people who are deciding <laughs> to right. move from poker to to uh, other other fields, as I understand. Um, and I, I used to play poker professionally um, back in the boom. Oh, really? So, That's yeah. good. Yeah, so this is interesting to me. Um, what are the overlaps that you notice between between poker players and, and data scientists? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. We've had uh, a number of poker players across different cohorts go through, and they've all been really successful. Um, you know, and I think it. You know, before I kind of get to to why, I think it kind of underlies the point. You know, which is that you don't need a PhD to do data science, and that's you know something that you see out there, and, and a lot of people are afraid to even try. 
um, to get into data science because they don't have you know what they think is the necessary academic credentials. It it definitely doesn't hurt, but you know as we've seen, you know we have a three way split between bachelors and masters and, and PhDs in our class, and um, they've all done equally well. And so don't let you know not having a PhD. Um, you know, kind of holds you back because we've, you know, we've seen baristas, we've seen poker players go through and, and, and do really, really well. And the poker player is, is really interesting to me because, you know, I think people who get drawn to poker, you know, are the people who have that kind of analytical mindset, right? They, they want to take a bit of a risk. Um, they want to try to game the system a little bit, right? They enjoy the game theory. They, they enjoy the analytics. And, and the people who are at the top of their game, they're, they're thinking about, you know, the analysis. They're thinking about, you know, what are the probabilities of, of winning and losing this hand? They're, they're, they're sometimes playing, you know, 20 or 30 games uh, or hands at a time. Um, they're typically, you know, scraping data and trying to look at their competition. And so it kind of engenders a lot of the same type of thinking um, that you would apply to, you know, a data science problem or a business problem in that, you know, how can I uh, get an advantage or how can I leverage, you know, data and numbers and probability uh, in order to, you know, kind of beat the house, if you will. And so I think that's why so many people have, have gone through it because, you know, the boom has busted a little bit. You know, they're, you know, typically um, open to a bit of risk and open to, you know, coming in and doing a three-month boot camp and, and really seem to fall in really well with these teams because um, they can really understand what, what the problems are and, you know, are, are creative in their solutions. Yeah, why have they moved away? From, I mean, how, when you talk to them, how bad... Do they say the bust has gotten? Um, you know, I think in, in talking to them, they made a, a lot of money uh, in the heyday. And, you know, with the changing, you know, regulatory structure, especially here in the United States, it's become harder and harder uh, to get your money out. And so I think, you know, there's still a lot of money to be had if, if that's what you want to do all day. But um, it's been harder and harder for them to, you know, get their money into a United States bank account. And so they're, they're saying it's, it's kind of just not worth it for them anymore. And I think the other component is to, to really be successful in poker, unless you're in the World Series, is it's, it's a grind, right? It can take 6, oh, 8, yeah. 12 hours a day of just constantly playing. And I think that gets old, um, especially after a few years. Um, I'd love to hear kind of kind of why you left and, and, and how you got on your path that you are now. Oh uh, well, I mean, I you know I kind of had an existential crisis when I was like uh, eighteen or nineteen. I had you know I I had made a, a good amount of money and I was like this is this is a terrible way to spend my life and it's it's one of these things where like you um you know you you find something that uh you can work really hard at and then make a lot of money and you sort of figure uh oh I'll I'll figure out later on down the line how to convert that money into happiness but eventually you get to a point where like you've got the money uh and the happiness conversion function doesn't like magically appear and so it becomes really worrisome um, that's, that's what happened to me. And then I was just like, then I, then I quit the game. Um, well, I mean, I also, I lost a lot of money before that happened, but <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a longer, longer story than gradual, uh, gradual movement towards computer science, um, which I found more fulfilling. So, Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. Do you, do you, do you, when you talk to them, do they, do they find, uh, do they say that they find data science more fulfilling? I mean, one of the interesting things about, about poker is it's like totally solitary and like right. I would imagine that would be even more difficult to move towards a collaborative data science 
field than uh, than from academia. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I only have a, a few data points, and they're all anecdotal. But um, the poker players that have come through are, are actually uh, very social. They're very extroverted, right? They want to be around people, and that was something that graded on them uh, was the solitary nature of, mm. of the work. Uh, and so they were actually very very excited, and and as they've been on an industry, they are very fulfilled, right? This is kind of. Uh, I, some of them have, con- have gone back and said, you know, I didn't even believe I could be this happy. I didn't know that there was, um, I didn't know that this was even out there, right? And, you know, thank you for, you know, accepting me in this program and taking a chance on me. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, this is the best decision I ever made. And so a lot of them are, are, you know, and I think that's why data science is so interesting because it's such a big field. Like you look at machine learning or statistics and like you could spend your entire life studying this and never understand it all. And, and never get through the entire you know, statistics canon. Um, and there are always new things that are being invented, new ways to apply this stuff. And so, you know, for me as a lifelong learner, this is the most exciting time to be alive because, you know, if you are interested in this and, and you kind of get into the uh, data science position, you know, you could be on a career trajectory for the next 20 years and never get bored. Um, and I think that's the most exciting thing for me, you know, and, and as people are coming in and as this industry continues to evolve. So I'd like to talk some about the future of data science as we close off. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about data science is that certainly, like, as you said, the current state of affairs is like, if you want to be a good data scientist, you kind of have to be a decent software engineer. I mean, in some sense, that's not true, but in many senses, it is. Um, but there are all these, like, higher level tools. Uh, you know, you've got things like like Tableau or Excel um, or, or even like Y Hat. Y Hat is kind of moving towards the direction of like decoupling the programming from the access of the API endpoint. Um, and I mean, so data science is certainly like a growing field. So my question is sort of like, is there is there going to be this gradual movement of of jobs opening up for highly technical people that aren't necessarily programmer types? Like I'm thinking like. Uh, the data-driven marketer or the the data-driven, um, you know, social media manager or the data-driven advertising person. Um, how does this fit into the future of the data, of data science? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll jump in here. I know Jonathan has a great answer to this as well. Um, you know, for me, I think, yeah, the, there is this proliferation of data science collaboration platforms and kind of machine learning platforms. And I think that that's all great. Um, and, and really what the, the short-term focus is, is increasing the productivity of the data scientist, right? There are a lot of things that um, are kind of, you know, either rote or boilerplates and things that are done over and over again. The, the less that, you know, we can do that janitorial work, um, the more productive that we can be, right? I think that's great. Um, I think the next phase of that is pushing a lot of these tools down into kind of less technical positions, like you're saying, the data-driven marketer, um, the data-driven product manager, things like that. And we still, we already have a lot of data, and we already have a lot of these dashboards and things like that. But what I always caution people is, you know, a lot of them say that you are not going to need a data scientist anymore once we come out with our platform, right? And I think uh, that is fundamentally untrue. I think we will become more productive data scientists with these tools, but you still have to have an understanding of the underlying science, the underlying algorithms, and and really understand your data because, you know, uh, I see a lot of people learning just enough data science to be dangerous, um, and they think that, hey, you know, this was statistically significant, or hey, you know, know, I got, uh, you know, an AUC of, you know, 0.98, 
um, there are a lot of um, landmines uh, within this field. And, and knowing where those are and being able to map those out and, and having the experience to say, you know, this is how we're going to use it here and watch out for this is so important and is going to be so hard to automate that I, I still think that the human element is always going to be necessary, but the tools are going to allow us to be more productive and do more than we're able to now with, with less effort. So, John, what's your vision for the future of data science? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think Ryan hit the nail on the head on kind of where the toolings are going to go. And this is something that we've seen in, in a lot of other technical industries. And, and I, I like to consider myself something of a, an amateur historian who um, looks to the past to kind of almost learn the history of science. And with software engineering and, and web applications, it wasn't until the 90s and a lot of frameworks got built that people could actually build websites. And now we have graphical drag and drop website builders. But in the 60s or when, in, in the early 80s, if you said, oh, I'm just going to like spend the night, like evening and like just build a sweet web application, like push it to the Internet so everyone can access it. They would think you're, you're kind of a blasphemer. And um, nowadays, people measure the time to build a web application in in minutes or hours. And I think with data science and the tooling, we'll see that where it's not necessarily data scientists as humans are ever going to go away. We still have people building websites with graphical drag and drop interfaces. It's not that the tool builds itself. It makes it much easier for a, a human to build what they want. And on the tooling side, I think we're only going to see increases in productivity and collaboration from libraries, tools, platforms. Um, but on, on the other side of, I think, where the future and where the industry is going is something where I'm seeing um, a, a, a bit of an uptake as of late is just solving more impactful problems through these techniques that typically only engineers and machine learning PhDs knew. And this is where we'll see people be more data-driven marketers. We'll see a lot of um, industrial applications leverage machine learning to figure out when a jet engine is going to fail or how to optimize a power grid and all these industries that aren't necessarily considered, um, I guess, software or, or digital, I think are adopting a lot of these tools just because they can use them for really like real world impact and gain. And the biggest bottleneck there, I think, always comes down to just um, education, collaboration and communication. So you may not need to be a PhD in machine learning, and most people don't need to be one to actually do real data science. But if you do work with someone who's highly technical, building incredibly complex models, they need to be able to communicate how it works and how another non-technical person could leverage it, just as much as the non-technical person needs to communicate, here's the problem we need to solve, here are the constraints, and here's the, the business value. So you take that and you build a model and let's work together. Um, so I think the, the future is going to be bright or dark, depending on <laughs> education, communication. And um, I really think openness and open data is really just propagating this much faster than it, and it, than it otherwise would have um, been spread in the world. Cool. Well, uh, Ryan and Jonathan, thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and uh, talking about uh, Zipvian Academy, which was acquired by Galvanize. So if you're looking to uh, get a data science education, you can check out Zipvian Academy or Galvanize. 
I'm not sure what, where the branding falls at this point, but the quality of the education is still the same um, or higher. So Ryan and John, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us, Jeff. This was great. Yeah, thanks, Jeff.